good to be here. Um, let's turn to First Corinthians 15, and we're gonna we're gonna dive in to God's word. <clears throat> I um I want to focus on about five verses, so uh, we'll we'll be looking at verses one through four, and then we'll look at the last verse of the chapter, which is verse 58. Um, it's so good to be here, man. I really do feel like. I don't travel and speak a lot anymore because there's so much going on at Snowbird. Um, and so most weekends we have stuff going on. We have, we have a fall retreat going on this weekend. and um, But this is one church I just love to come back to. It's kind of cool. I feel like uh, now I feel like I don't need introduction, you know. Y'all don't. Just kind of come talk about Jesus, Amen. teach the Bible, and eat them donuts Mike brings. <laughs> Y'all, them donuts are legit. They're legit. I know I talk about them, but I'm a connoisseur of donuts. And those, I don't think y'all realize how good you have it with that place in your backyard. Um, I don't know where they come from, but good. Um, I was talking to a group of students recently. I said, uh, uh, which before I get into it, I, I, cu- I busted my head last night. And I, and I was bleeding all down my nose driving down the road I hit my head in the hood in the ceiling of my truck <laughs> what kind of an idiot like I don't even know how you do something that stupid but I, but I gotta tell y'all when Jonathan came up to our fall board meeting you know Jonathan's on the board of directors at Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters and when he came to the fall board meeting he got himself shaven and he came to the meeting with a with a big band-aid across his lip right here and I was making fun of him and I know that's why God made me hit my head yesterday <laughs> oh man I was like I ain't putting a band-aid on top of my head um anyway I love y'all's pastor and his family a lot um so <clears throat> I was talking to a group of students I said how many of y'all had chicken pox why well, none of them raised their hands and I realized Apparently, this generation gets inoculated, you know, or immunized for chicken pox. Like, we have robbed this generation of a life-shaping experience. Everybody should have to have chicken pox. Like, that should be, like, part of the human experience, you know. And, um, but I got, I got to thinking. I, I remember when my, you know, my, my, so I have six children, and number, uh, numbers four, five, and six are all adopted, and four and six are biological siblings, and they're, they're East African, they're Ugandan. When they came, when, when we got them home, they didn't have any shot records or anything, so to get them in, we're public school people um, in our community, mainly because my wife was like, oh, I ain't doing that, I ain't staying at home all day, they ain't doing that, you know, and so, uh, and so anyway, our kids, get, and we're real involved in the local school system, very involved in our very rural, small county very rural like Yulee would be a suburban <laughs> metropolitan community to us all right and so uh and so she, i remember uh you know the kids would go to school well they had to get all these shots y'all we're taking them to the health department they're getting jabbed like three and four at a shot you know bah, bah, bah. And like every time we pull up the, the health department in our county is a double wide trailer I'm not kidding. It's sitting there like it looks like just somebody's house. And you pull up front of them and you go in and there's a lady, you know, and she's jabbing them. But, but what happens when you get Im- an immunization, when you get an inoculation, you get a small dose of something that's just enough that your body can instantly develop a defense against that thing, right? So then your body's able to then fight it if you ever get exposed to the actual 
disease or virus or whatever. And I, I think what has happened in the West, and particularly in America, and more specifically in the Bible Belt, is many people have been inoculated to the gospel. We've received just enough of Christianity or just enough of biblical morality or just enough of biblical truth or teaching that we've grown and developed a resistance to the power of the gospel. And Paul says in Philippians, and he writes that letter from prison. He's literally in prison. Um, and he's struggling, man. He's in, a, he's in a bad place. And he says, over and over in that book, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And then he says, he, he speaks of the power of the resurrection of Jesus. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Not a little bit of the gospel that I grow numb to or resistant to, but that overwhelms me. And I think that as we dive into 1 Corinthians 15, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, a chapter in the Bible. I, I think of it as a deep well. I think for me personally, Romans 8, Ephesians 2, and 1 Corinthians 15 are the three chapters that I, I draw from often. And I mean often, I mean weekly, sometimes daily. Large sections committed to memory, study, like diving into them. And 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus. Our faith is built on the, on, on the most incredible supernatural event in history. And the resurrection of Jesus is central to the gospel, but it's also central to every aspect of our lives as Christians. And I think it's important that we come back to the study of the gospel in general and uh, reflection on the resurrection in particular. There's a, an event that I've probably mentioned here before. I'm sure I have. It happened in uh, 2007. There was an accident, a car crash. Six kids from our ministry were in a car crash, and four of them died. Um, and two of them were in intensive care for about a month. And what happened was the, the, the four that died, <clears throat> they, were, they were all about 20. Um, and... The, there was a, a guy that was, there were five kids in the car, a sixth kid. They had all driven down to Atlanta to go to a Braves game. We're about two and a half hours north of Atlanta. They drove down to Atlanta, go to a Braves game, a bunch of our staff, about 50 kids. And then they were going to go, three of those kids were from Atlanta. So they were going to go to these three homes. It was their off night. And they were all going to go stay, have massive sleepover, you know, just crash. And then I'll come back to camp the next day to run our next week of camp. And when they left, the, when they were leaving the baseball game, this guy Dawson is his name. Dawson changed vehicles, so he went into a car that was a five-seat vehicle, and he made the, he was the sixth person. And Dawson's six-eight, and so he got in the front, and so that put four kids in the back, and none of them were buckled in. Well, Dawson was driving. The girl that was owned the car, her name's Kara, and Kara's about five feet tall. She's teeny. Dawson's six eight. She's like, you drive. I can get over here. We can kind of make you. You need the most space, and I'll get over here, and I can I can move my seat forward. And they were just kind of putting people in the car where they'd fit. Well, so they started driving, and then Dawson something was pulling on the car, and he pulled over, and he said, I don't want to drive your car because I feel like something's wrong, and I don't want to be. Basically, I don't want to break it, and I don't want to be driving it if something breaks. So they trade places. So Kara gets behind the wheel. 
and just a few miles later, a ball joint disintegrates, and that car rolls 13 times, and it ejects all four kids out of the back of the car, and they all get killed. And this is right smack in the middle of our summer ministry season. I mean, like literally, we had 24 hours later, we had 500 teenagers showing up, and this is part of our core ministry team. So this is a crazy time, and I remember going and seeing Dawson once he came out of ICU, once he could have visitors. He was, I mean, he broke, I don't remember how many bones he broke, collapsed lungs, head injury. Same with Kara. And, and Dawson came out of that, and I did his funeral, I mean his wedding, I'm sorry. Uh, did, had all those funerals, memorial services, um, did, but did his wedding like two years later. And uh, it was an honor to do that. Um, and it was, but it was kind of surreal because he was this monumental. And then I remember his first child was born, a little boy. His name's Brody, and he named him Brody. And I remember it was just, it was just this really emotional thing. Then he had two or three other kids. I don't remember their names because they're not named. <laughs> <laughs> One of them's named Josiah. I know that. Um, but anyway, Dawson, about once a year, that happened in 2007. About once a year, about about twice a year, we we meet up. He lives about an hour and a half from Snowbird. We meet up, and he's just struggled. He struggles with survivor's guilt. He's got it as bad as anybody I've ever seen. Even, even, and we've done a lot of ministry with uh, veterans organizations, a lot of combat veterans. I've, I don't know that I've known many people with as severe a case, and it's because he felt responsible because he was driving. First, because he got in the car, so now everybody's not in a seatbelt. If they'd have been in seatbelts, they wouldn't have died. Well, I... You got to lean into the providence of God when it comes to that kind of thing, you know. You got to just put that in the sea of God's sovereign omnipotence and let it float there, you know. Like you can't, you can't do anything with that. And then, but then he took blame for getting. He's like, if I would have been driving, maybe I'm strong enough, I could have kept the car from flipping. So their marriage just just struggled. Like I mean, bad. He just and oh, and to make to compound it, he's a paramedic in Atlanta. So he's working fatalities all the time. So he'll do good for a couple of weeks, and then he'll work a fatality where an 18-year-old kid gets killed, a 12-year-old kid, a family. And then it spins him right back into it. And so, it, and his coping mechanism has been alcohol. So it's, it, his family has struggled. And we meet a couple times a year. I, there's been times where I just want to wring his neck, you know, like, hey, man, come out of this. Step out of this. you got an awesome wife and amazing family. and um, But he's just struggled. And... This this past spring, we met up in May. They, they'll drive to Snowbird. We'll sit down and we'll meet. And I said, uh, how y'all doing? And I looked at his wife, and she said, we're doing great. Well, she ain't never said that. She's always like instantly waterworks. She starts crying. It's awful. He's drinking. The kids are seeing him yell and scream. Doing great. And as we started to talk, why are you doing great? What's going on? It's because he has gone back to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and the truth of the resurrection literally unlocks all of the promises of God for us like whatever mess you're freaked out about right now you just need to knock it off because dead people don't come back to life if Jesus can conquer sin and death and hell and the grave and come back to life he can deal with your thing. He can deal with your stuff. 
So you need to go back to the well of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. And I need to go back to that. We need to drink from that. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So I want to read the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So what verses 1 through 4 tell us is that the resurrection of Jesus is central to the gospel. The gospel is central to everything that we are, do, and believe. And at the center of the gospel, Paul says, this is the most important thing. So he says it's of first importance. Now, at the end of the message, what I want to do is jump down to verse 58, and there's sort of a charge, a challenge for us, how we respond to the word of God. But if you... Go home. If you're a note taker, great. If not, I'll sit. I don't know if y'all have a place where you post notes or whatever. I'll have these if nothing else available. I want to give you a quick overview of what happens between verses 4 and verses 58. And it's this. If you break the passage down, verses 5 through 8, he says the resurrection of Jesus is based on eyewitness accounts. This is important because over 500 people saw the resurrected Lord and were willing to die for their faith. It's a strong apologetic in verses 5 through 8. He's like, all these people have seen him risen from the dead. And then in verses 12 through 19, verses 12 through 19, he says the resurrection of Jesus is essential to the Christian faith. In other words, you can't embrace something about Jesus if you reject the resurrection. It's essential to the Christian faith. In fact, the way he explains the essential nature of the resurrection to our belief system is he, he sort of steps out of it and says, like, like the opposing view or an opposite view, the antithetical view of what we believe about the resurrection is this. If Jesus, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, verse 14, then all is vanity. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then all is vanity. That word vanity immediately takes us to the book of Ecclesiastes. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer there says, he speaks of all the endeavors of life that he's, that he's embraced or pursued in his own power. And he says, all of that is just vanity. The word in Ecclesiastes is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is pronounced hevel. And it's the idea of something that you can see, but you can't grab. You can feel, but you can't take hold of. I think of, I think of it, when you put out a candle, that stream of smoke that goes up, that's real, but it's brief. You try to take hold of it, and it's gone. He says, that's what your belief system is if the resurrection is not a reality. It's vanity. It's hevel. You're grasping at something that's not real. And then he says, if Jesus wasn't raised in verse 17, then our faith has no value. No value. We were, we were driving... We were, I, I love to go. Is this the church where somebody's connected to Pelican Snowballs? No, it's another church I preached at. <laughs> I preached at a church, and I talked about Pelican Snowballs. Do y'all know what that is? Do you have that down here? No, I don't. I don't know. All right, well, I'm going to tell you. So Pelican Snowballs is like the shaved ice place that we love to go, and they got about a bazillion flavors. really good. And you pull up there and you get your snowball, your snow cone, shaved ice. And you get your flavors and 
And so anyway, I was talking about it. So this person comes up to me afterwards and says, hey, we got people in our church that own a Pelican Snowballs. And they gave me like, you know, those little tubes, those sleeves of quarters, you know, quarter, you got like 10 bucks worth of quarters at, at the bank and they break them open. And it was like a sleeve of uh, tokens for a free Pelican Snowball. <laughs> I was like so excited, you know, I put them suckers in the door. Well, there ain't no Pelican Snowballs anywhere around me. Some things rode around in the door of my truck for about a year, and then I tried to use them at Dairy Queen one day. <laughs> I was like, hey, look, I'm a Dairy Queen aficionado. Like today, I'm going to stop at Dairy Queen twice. Once right when I get into South Georgia, and once right when I get into North Georgia. That's the way I break my trips up. I have the app. I know where every Dairy Queen is on 75. <laughs> and they wouldn't take it. You know why? Because that, that Pelican Snowball token has no value at Dairy Queen. They don't mean nothing to them, right? He says, if the resurrection is not true, then your faith has zero value. It's like Confederate money. It's like, it's like lost gold from a lost society that nobody cares about. That's the, so, so are we willing to say... I, just, I don't think the resurrection is that important. And in, the, in verse 19, he says, if Jesus wasn't raised, then we should be pitied. The la- I'll tell you right now, the way my mama raised me, the way my grandparents invested in me, the last thing I ever want anybody to do is feel sorry for me for anything, right? That's kind of like, like we're in a society where the victim mentality is celebrated. Where victimhood is celebrated. When and I don't I want to be very careful here because there are people who have been victimized and we have the answer for what will bring healing and hope for them. And the answer for that is the gospel. But what he's saying is, if Jesus wasn't raised, you're all victims of a great scheme. You've been duped. I feel sorry for you because you're not smart enough to figure that out on your own. That's them fighting words, you know, like that's strong. Verses 20 through 28, he says, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. I will be raised because Jesus was raised. In fact, the way he describes it in verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In the Israelite culture and in Roman culture and all, all Greco Roman culture, the way crops were laid out. So this stage is in four sections. If we were going to, if we were going to, like, like if you're going to do crops, like nowadays, uh, like in the valley where I live, there's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of acres of corn right now that's guaranteed to get cut. It's guaranteed to get cut and picked. Well, it'll all be done in, a, in about a week's time because they have these big seven and eight row combines. They'll take that corn up. They'll, they'll wipe out an 80 acre field like that. In the old days, everything was done by hand. So they would plant this section of the field right now. A month from now, they would plant this section. A month from now, they would plant this section. A month from now, they would plant this section. One of the beauties of the, the promised land of milk and honey was the fertility of the soil, and they could rotate crop growth. And that way, when it comes time to harvest... We could all come, and while we get this section harvested, this is still not ready, so we stay caught up. Well, what God said to Israel is, this first section, when you harvest this, that's called the first fruit. Bring that to me as an offering, and I will bless the harvest. So in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, he's saying, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. We, in our resurrection, are the harvest. 
Another place in Scripture, it says that Jesus, it says, it says, the Scripture says, let the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of His suffering. Let the Lamb who was slain as the first fruit in His resurrection receive the harvest or the reward in our resurrections. In that sense, we are the reward to Christ's obedience. So He says, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. The fifth thing he says in verses 35 through 49 is that our resurrection will be bodily and it will begin with the death of this body. This is great because it just means we don't, we don't fear death. Death is a door we walk through. But it is a reality. And we will. And the, but the sting, he says in the next section, verses 50 through 57, the sting has been removed from death. And so the sixth thing he'll tell us is that Jesus' resurrection was a victorious one. And in that conquered sin and death and hell and the grave so when you and I pass from death to new life to resurrection life we will in that passing conquer sin and death and hell and the grave the grave has no authority over us any more than the tomb had authority over Jesus our final victory in fact will come through death death will give way to our ultimate victory and the last thing he'll, he'll say in this chapter is that Jesus' resurrection drives our own call to action. That's where we'll land. But let's go back to that first section. That's all we're going to unpack, verses 1 through 4, which is that the resurrection of Jesus is central to the gospel. When we say that something is central to the gospel, what we're saying is that it is, it, it is, the, it is the gravitational pull. When, when you're talking to students and teenagers, you have to come up with uh, different illustrations or examples. And I was trying to think of how to explain this to a group of teenagers. How do we explain the centrality of the gospel? And this is how I explained it, and it worked for them. And it, some of y'all, it'll probably work for you. You'll think it's stupid, but it'll work for you. It works for me. I went, so I took my mom. My mama turned uh, 72 or 73 last week. So I drove over to my mom's. She still works, works 40 hours a week. Um, Hardworking gal. And I said, uh, and I called my stepdad and I said, hey, pap, I'm going to come over and surprise Grammy. You know, you do that when you, once you have kids, you call your parents the grandparent name, right? So I call my mom, like see my grandma now. So anyway. Go, we'll go over and, uh, and we'll take her to uh, Rocky's, Rocky's Hot Chicken. So, like, whoever Rocky is, he got it going on. Uh, so we went over there, and I was so excited. I got, I got my favorite. I get thighs, and I get them in my, the, my, my favorite of their sauces, and, and I got collard greens. I mean, it's soul food from front to back i got collard greens i got sweet potato casserole i got fried okra it's awesome they bring out the food you go up you order the thing and then you go sit down they bring out the food and they set it down and there's a few of us there and some of my family you know they're bringing out pints of beer you know and i'm like and i'm like looking around like distant you know if you're a baptist or you're a christian you got to distance yourself from your drinking family members when you're at a restaurant you know like i'm gonna make sure nobody that i know sees me sitting with these hooligans and so you know i got different and that's the other thing like everybody shows up well y'all eating we celebrating and then it was gonna be me and my mom now there's a group of people at the table at rocky's and so food's coming out and then they bring my mom this little plate about this big and it's got eight little balls on it i was like what is that 
we were at Rocky's. This is a, you eat fried chicken here, you know? And uh, she got these, it's, it was mac and cheese balls. And it was like macaroni and cheese, like a snowball, dipped in, any, you put anything in grease, you know, battered and throw it in grease. It's good. It's like hush puppy texture. And it was so good. And me and my stepdad had a full-blown conversation. How did they get the mac and cheese to stick together? You know, <laughs> while they deep fry it. This is wonderful. And so I was explaining to some students, I was like, how many of y'all like mac and cheese? Well, that's like the number one food group, you know, among kids. And so I was like, the gospel, whatever the binding agent is that you can't see, like it, it holds everything together. I think for us, at like at, 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 a, at an adult level, I think it's the, it's the thing that holds us in, in like a gravitational position. So it's what stabilizes you. It's what gives you ballast. It's what anchors you. It's what steadies you. I think of... I think of, there's there's some people in our church, y'all live in the mountains, um, there's some mountain people that still don't think the earth is round. That is a true story. There are three families in our church that, that believe the earth is flat. I have had conversations till I'm blue in the face, like, I watched the Red Bull guy jump out of the spaceship and do the highest skydive ever, and you could see in the video it's round. And he's like, no, it's because it's got like a round hump to it. I'm like, whatever, I'm not having this conversation right now. <laughs> like... But but the way gravity works is you've got the the planet is a sphere, and like I remember as a kid in school thinking, wait, if what about the people in Patagonia? They're under here. How are they not falling off? You know, I remember this whole thought process, and that's when I learned about gravity. And the, so this the the gospel centrality is this idea that everything is held in place. By the gospel. In, in, in Hebrews, I think I preached this text here before. In Hebrews 1, the scripture said that Jesus upholds creation by the word of his power. Like everything is held in place by the word and power of the gospel. So the gospel is central to everything, but the resurrection is central to the gospel. Without the resurrection, we have no gospel. <clears throat> and so he describes it this way in these first two verses. He says... He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So past tense, preached. Now, I think there's a couple things we got to think about right here. The first one is he makes it clear that the gospel was preached. The word preached is the idea of a proclamation. It's a declaration. It's an emphatic declaration of truth. It's a call to repent. There's The gospel is not peddled. The gospel is not negotiated. Conquering kings do not negotiate the terms of surrender. And if Jesus conquered sin and death and hell and the grave, if he put all of his enemies under his feet, then he doesn't negotiate the terms of relationship. He proclaims and commands and declares. So the gospel is a proclamation. The gospel is a declaration. The gospel is a call and a command. And he said, I would remind you of that. Why would he remind us of that? Well, I think for one reason, lest we grow too comfortable with our risen Savior, who is a consuming fire. We cannot grow so comfortable with Jesus that we no longer stand in his presence in fear and trembling and awe and amazement 
and worship. And when you read the doxologies, those doxological passages of the New Testament, like for from him and to him and through him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Romans chapter 11. Or at the end of Jude where he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. To him be glory and majesty and dominion for now and for all time and forevermore. We serve a Savior who has the power to save. That must be proclaimed, not whispered. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached, I proclaimed. I'm gonna, I've, I've given myself an extra 10 minutes for this sermon over the previous service. All right, so... I'm sorry, and you're welcome. <laughs> and, and, and so I've already done five of them. I'm going to give you the other five minutes right here. There's a guy. There's a guy that started coming to our church. He's 59 years old. His name is Paul. Please write his name down and pray for him. Paul is an atheist. He went to uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, was a professor there. He and his wife are 59 years old. They've retired to our valley from upstate New York. They picked seven places that they wanted to look at as a potential retirement. They moved to our area last fall, October. So going on a year now. And they go to the, they, they start putting everything in order. They choose the eye doctor, the optometrist in our community, in our town um, is a member of our church guys, super on mission. It's a husband, wife. They're both optometrists. They run, they run two offices so they so so Paul and Darcy go in to get their their eye stuff done. They're, they both wear glasses, so they go in to, to establish a relationship as patients or clients. Well, our eye doctor is like a gospel gunslinger. So when you get in there and, and he like you you know he'll take a picture of your eye and then he'll show you the intelligence of the design, like the technology, that like how this is. It would be impossible. All the all the implausibilities of how this could just happen. So like when you get in the chair in his office, you're getting the gospel. Like, I love that guy, which is a good lesson for all of us that work in the public square, right? So he gets them to come to church. They come to church. They'd never been to church other than uh, some, some uh, Catholic upbringing. So this, they've been coming to church now for about six months. And they started, they were so intrigued uh, by everything. They started to, and what, what was happening was as they're entering into retirement, they have no children. They're 59 they go through an existential crisis. What is the meaning of life? What are we here for? Why do we exist? What is there to, like, what, what's after this? He literally said to me, I would have committed suicide six years ago, but I love my wife and don't want to leave her by herself. Because I, I'm, I'm just, I, don't, I just don't like living like this. So one of our, one of our uh, professors in our leadership institute some of you know Zach Mabry. Zach Mabry has a, a Master of Divinity from Southern Seminary in uh, Worldview Apologetics. So this guy, Paul, says, hey, I want to talk with one of the pastors. I was like, I got a guy. And so, <laughs> so he said, tell him to, he better be ready. And I was like, you have no idea. Like this, this guy literally speaks, co- teaches college courses on Christian apologetics. And so they, they start to meet weekly, have these apologetic conversations. Zach is just masterful at graciously but affirmingly answering every question this guy's got about the meaning of life, the origin of life, why this, why that, the problem of evil. So then he wants to have lunch with me. I was like, all right, man, this is going to blow your mind. <laughs> and we sit down and he, and he starts down that path. And I was like, all right, man, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not an intellectual. 
Like, literally, listen to me. You need to have faith in Jesus and leave everything else to God. That's it. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ came into the world and fulfilled 300 Old Testament prophecies. He went to Calvary's cross and he died to alleviate the, the weight of what you're feeling right now. And when you put your faith and your trust in him, you don't have all the answers, but you have freedom from sin. Amen. And we're at this place where this guy, Paul, we're starting to meet every week where now he's watched, he's like, Every Christian movie he can get his hands on. He's watched the movie y'all going to watch here in the next couple of weeks. He's watched all of the chosen. He's, he's listening to sermons. And he's like, I've got all these questions. At the end of the day, though, the gospel has to be proclaimed. I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you in which you believed and received it. Got to believe it. Got to receive it. So the gospel has three applications in these two verses, these four verses, and we're done. The first one is the gospel saves. I would remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, so it saved you. It's a starting point of the gospel. We call that justification. Justification, you're saved by faith through grace. The second aspect is this. He says, in which you stand. The gospel is the thing that anchors you, that holds you fast. That it, Think of it as, as it, if you think of a ship or a boat, that that portion that's below the surface of the water has to have the right amount of weight or ballast to keep whatever's above the water from being top heavy one of the funniest things to do is to watch somebody that's never been in a canoe try to get in a canoe because it's it has no ballast it's wobbling like this and then you know and, and we watch kids flip out of those canoes and i laugh every single time i the last person you want to mess up in front of is me because i'm gonna laugh at you and laughing and and but it's because it's top heavy right so the ballast uh, the larger the ship the greater need for proper ballast below the surface the gospel gives us that ballast so we're not just anchored, but when we pull anchor and journey through life, through storms, through the seas of whatever's in front of us on this journey that God's got us on, the gospel gives us ballast. It, it gives us stability. So he says, I would remind you of the gospel you received, past tense, momentary, in a moment you received it, in which you now stand day to day to day that's in which you walk or live or exist that's sanctification the process of walking out your faith with jesus over the course of your christian life and then he says and in which you are yet to be saved and he's pointing to the future glorification that will occur in eternity when we're with the lord after our own bodily resurrection i was terrible in school i was terrible with math and i I could have stopped that sentence after I was terrible in school. <laughs> Literally. You school teachers, God bless you for students like me. And so, but I was real bad at math. And when I got to college, they made me take a class called math. <laughs> and like, I remember all my friends, I remember I had a couple teammates. I'm like, we we're going through our first freshman year classes. I'm like, what do you got? And he's like, oh, man, I got, uh, I got trigonometry for finance or calculus for finance or something like that. I was like, hmm, please, please, God, don't let them ask me what I have, you know. What do you got? I got math. Which math? Which math? What do you mean, which math? Math, like numbers and stuff. <laughs> Turns out it's called remedial math. You might have heard of that. It does have another name, a descriptor, you know. And so, but I remember going through school, and I remember I t took geometry in 10th grade, 
And I remember that I had this teacher named Mr. Richardson. He was such a good teacher. He taught these things that I could not grasp, these concepts that I could not grasp. And he helped me pass that class. And I remember he would, he would, when he would talk about different geometrical shapes or ideas, he would draw little stick figure pictures. He would use an overhead projector. Remember those? You write right here, and then it projects it up here. And I remember he, he drew a picture of a little guy, a little stick man, with goofy-looking face and one tooth sticking down and a funny hairdo. And he said, this is Ray. And he said, I'm going to teach you guys today what a ray is. I'm like, okay, here we go. Well, a ray is when you have a point, a point on the paper, a dot. You remember this in geometry? That means there's a, there's a finite point. And then there's a line with an arrow on the end of it. A point, a line with an arrow on the end of it. That arrow signifies infinity. Do you all remember this? So there's a starting point, but it never ends. What he's saying is, the gospel for you and I has a starting point. But our experience with glory will be infinite. It'll never end. Not only will it never end, it will always be increasing. So a million years into your experience in heaven, it'll be better than it was a thousand years into your experience in heaven. Somehow, and I don't know how that works, but oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unknowable are His mercies, how unsearchable are His truths, and we'll never experience all that there is to experience. That's, it, it will take all of eternity, and we'll still be increasing in our understanding and knowledge. So he says, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Boom, it started here, which you received in which you stand and are journeying, in which you are being saved. Our being saved is what we would call, it's, it's an ongoing process that part of the reality is true now, part of it is yet to be fulfilled. That is the gospel. And he says, this is the most important sentence in all of Scripture. I love the Old Testament stories. Love teaching my kids. I remember my oldest daughter when she was little bitty I was, I was, I was a zealous gung-ho 30 year old preacher she was 4 or 5 years old and I remember teaching her the story of David and Goliath we would act it out in my living room and I would have her behead me and hold up a pillow as if it was my head I'm like you're David I'm Goliath and, and we show her mom you know and I remember some people came over she wanted to we did the whole reenactment it's David and Goliath she chopped my head off and I remember explaining and teaching to her, Noah's Ark was a time of judgment. And God was purging and cleansing the earth. And then the rainbow, the significance of the rainbow. And so then I remember we were at a baby shower. And they were decorating the baby's room in Noah's Ark. And I remember my five-year-old daughter going, uh, I don't think they know. Like, like, go through the Bible. There's so many significant monumental moments in the redemptive story. If we just took the covenants, the Adamic covenant in the garden, when God promises Adam, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's a big deal. The Noahic covenant where God said, I'll never destroy the earth again by water. No judgment. And he puts the rainbow. Here's the sign of my covenant. The covenants with Abraham and Moses and David. Those are monumental moments. And yet Paul says, but this is the most important thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That hinges on the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That gives us hope, ballast, direction, 
promise for the future, freedom from the past, stability for the moment. The gospel of Jesus is everything. And so how do we respond to it? Well, verse 58, the last verse of the chapter, he says, he says this, and I love this verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, do two things. Be steadfast, steadfast and immovable. There's two things I would add that I didn't add this morning. I just ran out of time. Two things that will give you steadfastness. Number one is doctrine in your pursuit of knowledge of the word of God. And number two is be steadfast in character. Live the Christian life authentically, not perfectly, but authentically. Be steadfast and then always abound in the work of the Lord. I love reading. My daily reading is in the New Living Translation. And in that, he, I love the way he words that. It's the idea of, of being enthusiastic in the work of the Lord. Do the work of the Lord. And it's not always easy. I was talking to my daughter recently, and she's every single day she's having to hold this three-year-old little Sudanese girl down and scrub a severe burn this little girl had on the inside of her calf from a, a muffler when her dad laid the little motorcycle down, the scooter, and it burned her. And it's just her and her dad, and he's young, and he doesn't know what to do, and they don't have great medical practices there. And so they're trying to get her to a mission hospital in the city where she could have a skin graft, but they've got to, if you've ever seen a severe burn, it's got to be kept clean and scrubbed out until it can scar and, and create some hard scar tissue. So every day Kilby was having, and Kilby's been here. Some of y'all know her. They, Kilby and Greg have been here to this church. She scrubbed She said, Daddy, I can't do it tomorrow. She passed out twice today while I was scrubbing her leg. And she's looking at me like, what are you doing to me? Because she's three years old. And I, and I just said, you are abounding in the work of the Lord. And nothing said it was going to be easy. Somewhere along the way, we thought there was an easy button to doing what God calls us to do. There ain't much in your life going to be easy. That's why Jesus says, take my yoke. We'll do this together. Then the burden will be light. Then the yoke will be easy. And then you will abound in the work of the Lord. So he says, based on the resurrection, here's our call to action. Be steadfast in doctrine, in pursuit of knowledge, in Christian character, and excel or abound in the work of the Lord. The hope that we have, church, is in the resurrection of Jesus. And that what a hope it is, man. What a hope it is. Because one day we will see him. We will be face to face with him. We will have our own resurrection. And because of that, we don't have to fear anything between now and then. No matter I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or whatever else this life throws at me, the resurrection is, is the hope that we have.